Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. I thank you so much for joining us here on the program. We have a very special guest. Well, of course, you know I say that at the beginning of every program, but they're all special guests because they have something unique to offer us, to think about, to ponder. Um, you know, I, I often feel as though after these programs, uh, I, I have to take a breather. I have to go out and and kind of do what Mary, the mother of Jesus, did. Ponder the things uh, that, that I've just heard and experienced. Well, today... We're going to talk with Eli, uh, and I believe it's Coberly. I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program and his book, War in the Hearts of Men. It's great to have you with us. Thanks. It's great to be here, Richard. And 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 the subject actually has to do with something that po- most people probably uh, aren't truly aware of, but uh, they will be after this program. And it has to do with something that we talked about on this program 11, 12, even 13 years ago, not so much much before that. Uh, and that is December, and I think it was the 12th, but anyway, it was in December of 2012, having to do with what was freaking everybody out, like 12 years previous to that, Y2K, the Mayan calendar came to an end, as they say. I have to wonder, maybe there was a misinterpretation, but you look into not so much the calendar, but you, you, you've you investigated and researched uh, ancient civilizations, and you've come to a rather interesting uh, conclusion. Talk to us about that as we get started here. Well, in reference to time, uh, most of the indigenous viewed time as uh, cyclical as opposed to linear, like the Western thought. So um, when you have the that end of the world concept was more like the start of a new beginning um, of a new world as opposed to just, oh, it's all going to end. There's going to be a catastrophe. Um, so time is, is more like a spiral than a line. And these ancient cultures like the Maya people would record it in um, uh, through symbols and, and numbers and, and longer distance of time, like the Bakhtun, 144,000 years um, illustrated by a symbol. I'm sorry, not years, days. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. And 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 that seems to be a big bugaboo. I mean, we're I myself, I have a pet peeve uh, about this whole daylight saving time business. And it's like, okay, uh, Ben, back in your day, it may have worked fabulously. Uh, but here today, all I can say is cut it out. Stop it. We don't need it anymore. The animals don't even have a, they're not aware of it. They don't care. Uh, and it's it's actually shown to be actually uh, physically damaging and dangerous to human beings. Uh, I mean, they've shown that death rates seem to go up. Heart attacks seem to go up the Monday following the time change, whether you're going into daylight saving time or coming out. And I know that many, many other countries who did have it, they haven't had it for years because they realized we don't need it anymore. And, and that's just one aspect of, of time. And then, of course, there was, uh, what was it? The, the, there was the Gregorian calendar for the West. And then we went to the Julie, I believe I'm correct, went to the Julian calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it, it, and, and, and trying to figure out how to calculate. I mean, there is someone who said there was no year zero, you know? 
uh, there was uh, one BC and then one AD, or if you do the common era uh, interpretations. But somehow, some way, these cycles uh, are these cycles that can be broken, or have you noticed that this is just the cycle that the human species is locked into? Well, I mean, science certainly has a lot of stories about what really happened and with geology and those kind of things, but uh, indigenous people have another story. So um, they've said there's been four worlds and this is the fifth world and this is our, our last chance. So um, consciousness is through computers and technology has really arisen. So uh, it shows now that we have a more of an ability to understand the gravity of our choices as a society. So I, th I feel that that time is going is in a more conscious state these days is it really <laughs> Be whoops hold on just a moment something has uh kicked in here and it should not have there we go uh is it it has it really has it really changed that much i mean it seems like it's gotten worse because of technology uh, we look at the polarization in this country and a lot of the upheavals we've got russia invading ukraine we've got all these other things or is it a perception that it's gotten worse because of technology it really hasn't and as you just stated the consciousness of the planet has actually risen collectively um i think you're right on both accounts i mean look at look at the algorithms of the news that you get that you're sitting right next to someone and maybe you're on your smartphone and then someone right next to you has the same subject but a different news pattern and why is that because we're being marketed um, by our conversations and our thoughts to come up with a certain outcome of our consciousness so i would say that you know everything's being recorded injustices are being recorded um but the news tends to focus on fear. And so, um, you know, computers have helped us notice um, more things that are wrong in the world or that are possible in the world, but they've also helped us stay fixated on the negative, I would say. Mm. Uh, and, and that is certainly true. Uh, you know, we're here in the West. I mean, I, I'm 62, be 63 this year. Uh, my father who just passed was 91. And I used to say that, uh, you know, I know my father is frustrated. I, I know that he is. I, I know that he feels, you know, like uh, the world that he is uh, leaving his children and his grandchildren and even his great grandchildren is worse off than it was when he was alive, in spite of the fact that he went through the Great Depression and so forth. And yet, I, I, and I'm glad you phrased it that way, that in spite of the fact that we're now over 8 billion human beings on the planet, um, by percentage, the, the kindness level based upon the population is probably at the same level or percentage wise, or maybe higher. And I have to say that when I go to YouTube, in particular, and I start looking at some of these videos, uh, I'll just, you know, go sliding through some of these things and the acts of kindness and and consideration, uh, saving of animals and people and uh, and so forth and so on definitely does seem to be 
Uh, I'm glad somebody's putting these up there. We're, we're able to see these things. And I got to tell you, it warms my heart, makes me feel like there is hope. And it sounds like your your research has shown that, yeah, there is hope. You know, you say this is our fifth go round and this is our last chance. Do you have any answers to the question why it's our last chance? Why did why we got five strikes instead of instead of three? Um there's nothing to really prove scientifically or, or logically, but um, you could go back to talking about Atlantis and the mythology behind that. And, and um, the connection of the Hopi people, I read about um, Four Corners region in, in Northwest uh, North America. And those people talked about these uh, ancients who, who were connected to this creator and the creator gave them chances. Right. Mm -hmm. And they continually got to this advanced stage in civilization and blew it every time. Um, and so they, you know, they say that, well, the creator, whoever that is, they don't say who he is or she is, but that it came down to cataclysm and wiped out everything. And then we got to start again. And they said, well, this time, it's just it just says in the prophecies that we've had our last chance. And so it's kind of like and even like Wandering Wolf of Guatemala, this guy that I used to study with, he's he talks about the the ending of the age and like, you know, the the mass production of computers and cars and technology. And and, you know, they say we've done this before. And and ultimately, I, I, I do write about how, you know, imagine if the place is completely burned by by volcanoes or, or major storms or lightning storms or solar flares imagine how hard it would be to find a piece of metal that was that was a you know technology based like how how are you going to find that if it just melts or it gets buried under the sea interesting because the thing that that i find interesting i was uh, i in in this business of broadcasting, I worked for about 15 years for a Christian radio station. And I have to tell you that there came a point, and it was only probably two or three or four, maybe six years into that stint, where I began to ask the question, is there something that I can do to help to bring about the the antichrist and uh armageddon and all of these things because i, I want to tell you this i'm bored with this story i am absolutely bone dead bored could you you've been telling the same story for two thousand years could you get a little more creative and then of course we have those people who want to predict there was one guy by the name of Edgar Wisenot in 1988, believe it or not, who predicted Jesus would come back uh, the 16th, 17th, or 18th of September that year. The 16th, 17th, and 18th came and went. No Jesus, at least not what they were expecting. So he disappeared for a few months, returned saying, uh, well, my math was off. I forgot to carry the one or something. I don't know what it was. <laughs> It's actually next year, 1989. September 1989 came and went, nothing. I looked him up a few years ago. He'd passed away in early 2000s. And I'm going, well, at least now he knows the truth, you know, and we can get on with whatever. But people are still trying to figure out if and or when. So 
the the other element of this too is, and I'm hearing from different people in different fashions, in regards to this aspect that supposedly is part of maybe it's in our DNA. This whole aspect of as as your title refers to, and or at least implies, war in the hearts of men. Um, some say, yeah, that's part of man's nature. Others say, no, it's not. It it's something. It's an aberration. It's a uh, uh, it's something that a pattern that we've sort of gotten locked into uh, over the over the millennia. Uh, what is your what is your theory and or in terms of your research? Is this is this imprinted in on our DNA that, you know, we don't have any other choice but to to play these silly games like, for example, in our modern day Putin is playing? Well, I mean, agriculture certain play, certainly played a role in all that. So you have, oh, well, we got to farm crops and we got to make a big square and keep animals and people out of there and people want in and we're going to have kids to look after our our big square and those kids must be protected and then those kids must protect us and it's it's sort of like that's a big piece of it too is is defending what's yours so you can eat and survive and these rudimentary skills but also it plays a bigger part is when you look at the solstices and the equinoxes Mm -hmm. um how, how the the equinox you know is are two polar opposites and you have masculine and feminine ideas um the sun being the lunar and the or the sun being the the masculine and, and the moon being the the um feminine because mm -hmm. it's solar and lunar consciousness right and so the grander scheme is like we have these two energies working um in conjunction with these greater cycles that the maya people talked about and so those cycles can go in a spiral from masculine to feminine. And so if you talk about energy, what's energy? It's electricity or it's it's how things move or how you connect. Well, the polar energies of the earth are, are influencing us throughout grander cycles of time. And that's what the Maya people said. So um, ultimately, without being conscious, we're kind of succumb to... Uh, whatever these energies are and it, and that's why if you say it's a spiral maybe at the center it's in perfect balance mm -hmm. if time is, is a spiral and the center is perfect balance then it spirals out and you have more masculine more masculine more masculine and then you see more times of of dominance and war and then you go closer to the feminine and you see more times of doing what's best for the children and and those sort of nurturing capabilities so the best thing that we can do according to the indigenous is understand the necessity for both. Mm -hmm. But also there was times where the Maya people would be like, all right, Venus is, is happening right now. It's really bright. Now's the time to go to war. Um, we're planting crops right now because they look up at the stars and say, now's the time, or they look at the, observe the cycles of the weather. And then this is the time for war. And then they make war. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it is interesting, and of course that's what I've been hearing uh, of late. Uh, when I say of late uh, in the last few years, that uh, this is not about the feminine uh, coming and taking control. This is about working towards a balance between the feminine, and the masculine energies. Not we're not talking about the sexes here. Uh, it's about the energies, and we're going to talk more about that as we continue here. I want to let you folks know we're talking with uh, Eli Coberly. Did I do I have your last name pronounced correctly? Yes, yeah. Eli Coberly, and uh, his quest did not come from sitting in a library studying history. It began 
with his own harrowing experience, which we'll find out more about as a teenager, paratrooping uh, with seeing and experiencing needless neglect, emotional abuse, physical battling, battering, and loss of life stemming directly from this social condition as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host here on the program, Tell Me Your Story. We're here with Eli Coberly. We're talking about the work that he has compiled in a book entitled War in the Hearts of Men. And uh, we've kind of talked about sort of the energy and the spiral, the, the, the cyclical process, which is a spiral. It's not just a circle. Um, and that uh, we're looking for that balance, uh, not only in our societies, uh, um, Eli, but also in ourselves. Um, would you say that uh, um, in particular, because it appears that you've studied more in regards to the Mayans, but also other indigenous peoples, um, specifically, I guess, what, of Central and South America? Yeah, mostly in North America. Yeah, and the continent. Um, I'm wondering about because this is this is one of the things that, you know, it's like I, I you know, you've heard of the term uh, critical race theory, right? I think it's I think it's incorrectly named. It should actually be the good, the bad and the ugly of history. In other words, let's take a look at it all. OK, don't judge it. OK, there's no reason to judge it. It is what it is. Man has done what man has done. OK, but it's important to look at it all. And it sounds like to me that's what you're doing. You're looking at all of it. Uh, as I, I, I would I would guess the Mayans did. That's that's where we come up with this whole cyclical aspect of life. Um, tell us a little bit about your beginnings that have led you to write this book and, of course, to be here with us on this program uh, in terms of those experiences that you've had. Yeah, well, I, I actually joined the Army when I was 15, my mom signed a note and I left um, when I graduated, I was still 17. Um, by the time I got done with all of my training, I was barely 18 and could buy cigarettes. And when I was honorably discharged, I was 20 years old and I couldn't legally drink alcohol. But in that time period, less than a year after I joined, they moved up my time to leave. I left two weeks after I graduated. It was supposed to be a month and a half. And it was right as the Kobar Towers were blown up. Um, it was a giant thing in Saudi Arabia where people were doing paperwork for the government, for the U.S. interests. And so I was shipped, I was trained, and, and just a couple months after being at my unit, I was shipped off to Saudi Arabia to guard this giant compound um, of people doing paperwork, like thousands of people on this base altogether, but I'd say hundreds um, of U.S. Air Force doing paperwork, and then we had hundreds of people working in, around there, and we were guarding them all, and we were looking for bombs and threats, terrorist threats, but ultimately what I saw was, you know, uh, huge oil tankers, uh, oil tanks, and I would sit sometimes up under this camouflage net and glass them and look, make sure, okay, is anyone, you know, putting a bomb on them or any of this, and, also, the McDonnell Douglas had these big jet air fighters. So basically, I was, I was understanding something about what how much interest we had in business with, uh, with our government um, overseas, and just how big of a business it was, and just what my role was as a pawn in the game of uh, colonization. And so then I thought, 
wow, I really want to study colonization after I got out. And I started going to Central America because it was wild and it was something where I could get away from the reality of what I had seen in my time of service. Mm -hmm. Well, and and you've been able to travel and it's interesting um, how, uh, for example, my my brother Tra had, was, would travel the world. He went, he worked for Disney and he would travel to the countries where they were building the Disney amusement parks. It was France and China and, and so forth. And um, tells me that, you know, this is the greatest country in the world because I've lived in for a period of time, these different countries, and it's just horrible and this and that and the other. And, uh, and it's like, okay, well, I don't want to take that for granted, but by the same token, um, uh, why are we not looking at, as I said before, the totality of our history, uh, the totality of our present, uh, but when we're I'm, I, did you have you have you done a, a research because I know you've done research in many other areas uh, in regards to this subject, uh, the Native American Indians, the North American Indians and even the Canadians. I know there are there are native tribes up in Canada as well. I mean, the Americas, North, Central and South have had indigenous peoples for thousands of years. What stories, what information, what uh, prophecies, if you will. Uh, have you found that continue to corroborate these independent sources that seem to speak of the same things? Well, like I was saying earlier, the Hopi people, uh, the Navajo kind of talk about that too, the fifth world, but also the Maya people is the same story they have. And ultimately a lot of their DNA is the same because, and also their trade route routes. Um, but there's a much older story to all of it. If you look into stuff like the Kennewick man in, in Washington, along the Columbia river, my grandfather did a lot of those digs, finding the ancient arrowheads and things like that spear points that were much older and from other locations and all this, all this stuff. So mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of prophecy around um, and actually in Pyramid Lake, I'm writing for my next book, Pyramid Lake in uh, Reno, outside of Reno, mm -hmm. is they have a, a prophecy about just being ended up, ending up there on, on a big, like holding on to a raft or something and just ending up there um, mm. from a giant flood. So a lot of the cataclysms, the, the flood stuff like from Noah at that time, and it's been around for a really long time and they all talk about it. Interesting. Um, do they coincide in any way uh, with, for example, with biblical or I don't know if if Islam and the Quran have prophecies, some of the other philosophies around the world? Are there are there correlations there uh, or are they somewhat divergent uh, in, in their assessment of uh, the future of man and the planet? Um, honestly, every one of them, every single one of them, including um, the Jewish tradition and, you know, Dome of the Rock and Islam and all that. Um, I don't, I'm not sure about Islamic stuff. I haven't studied a lot of that. But what I will say is everyone is waiting for a white Messiah like Jesus to save the world. Um, the Hopi called the Pahana, um, the Central Americans, they got tricked so many times by some white guy showing up. Oh, he's got a beard and he has a cross because they already had the cross woven into their their symbology and their their religion. And so it's like when when everyone showed up with a cross, they just welcomed him in and said, this is the great white brother kind of thing, you know. 
um, boy, were they wrong. <laughs> yeah. 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 Unfortunately. What about your own personal philosophy? Uh, in uh, where did you start as a child growing up? Your parents, uh, what did they, what did they teach you or, or introduce you to? And how has that developed over the years to where you are today? Uh, my parents were like Jesus freaks, you know, that my dad was a, uh, he was a teenager and he was, he was taking LSD and hitchhiking up and down the coast of California. Um, so he, and then he found Jesus because he needed, I think that to get along and, and my parents met. And so it was like, that's what they were into. And I was like, Whoa, wait a second. Like I was in the church, everyone's speaking tongues and, you know, running out and singing in the aisles. And it just didn't make sense to me. I wanted something greater. And my grandfather on his deathbed, he said, I said, what do you believe in heaven and hell and all this stuff? I asked him and he said, Eli, there's other things in this world um, than you know. And um, there's other dimensions and it's not like you've been told. And that was something that stuck in my mind and growing up in a, a town of 200 people, you're either a farmer or a logger. Um, my mm. grandpa said that and I, and he, he was into, like I said, you know, archaeology and all this. He was teaching geology at Western in, in Bellingham, Washington, where I grew up. Hmm. We're talking with Eli Coberly here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, we're talking about uh, war in the hearts of men. And it uh, that is kind of where it resides. The one thing I, I think I really do like about the, uh, the Jewish tradition uh, in my conversations with rabbis in particular is that, and even my own research, that uh, when you read about uh, Satan or the devil or evil and so forth. Um, the Jewish uh, tradition te doesn't teach that there is a literal Satan. Now, there may have been an angel by the name of Lucifer, you know, but uh, the, 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 the reality, according to Jewish tradition, is that is the lowest base nature of man. It is not outside of us. <laughs> it's within us, but it kind of goes to that Native American story about the black and the white wolf and which one will win the battle. What depends upon which one you feed. Do we feed, uh, do we feed the warlike, uh, the, the, the lower base nature of man, or do we feed the higher, higher levels, the higher consciousness of man? Is that uh, kind of what you have found over the years? Yeah. I mean, Joseph Campbell talks about the necessity of, of darkness and, and um, the shadow self. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he's, he, what he's saying is that um, you can't have one without the other polarities are necessity for transformation and um, understanding of the true self, the true nature. And so if you deny those, uh, the understanding of the darkness and you always just feed the light, then you might be delusional. But if you're always feeding the dark, then you might not ever get to the light. Interesting also how you, uh, I, and I actually love this about what you, the research you've done, you've incorporated, you've studied, you've researched numerology, symbology, vibrational resonance and sacred geometry. And they all demonstrate that the shaman, the wise man, uh, and perhaps some unique race have appeared in many seemingly unconnected places that have found a way to access the timeless knowledge and potential available to all in the Akashic records or uh, the energetic archives, which I find so fascinating um, because there's another element, too, uh, that I, I've 
I've stayed away from for a long time, but I've delved more into it as the years go by because it's almost inescapable. And that is the influence of other worldly beings. I'm not talking about um, supernatural, spiritual kinds of things. I'm talking about, well, for lack of a better term, extraterrestrials, ETs, uh, aliens. Uh, what, if any, information do you have in that regard to their influence, their awareness of these prophecies, of the cycles that human be the human race has been going through for, as you say, the fifth time, the fifth and final time, ladies and gentlemen, uh, any, any insight is at all, or is that all just kind of, yeah, I don't want to go there because that's just a little too, a little too far out. Well, I, I kind of, when I wrote the book, it was, it was about a lot of different ideas that people were kind of afraid to talk about. So I, I don't have a problem talking about it. Um, the Paracas people of Peru, um, that's something that is really popular these days with those shows like Ancient Aliens and all this kind of stuff. And there's one guy, Brian Forrester, who who really kind of pioneered the idea behind um, some findings in the early 1900s that on the shores of Paracas of these elongated skulls. Um, the sagittal suture was missing and, and they had a larger skull by volume. And people continually try to prove that these are just... Uh, cradle boarding you know like when they they'd smash the kid's head when it was malleable to make it pointed up to look like royalty well who are they supposed to who is the royalty that's the question they often ask but um and so i was interested in it and i went and i saw a conference and i i talked i saw them speak along with the astrophysicist and geneticist and he said they took the test and it was something that was not human um, as we know it now, granted, it might have been mixed with human DNA, but it was something different. But um, since it it destroys the narrative based on science of, of the Christian religion or society and, and our colonization, no one wants to talk about it. But the reality is, is a scientist said that the DNA from these skulls was something different. So and we've been finding stuff like that all around the world. Um, for a long time that isn't quite the same uh, species as us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, there's lots of other examples. So I think that it's just good to have an open mind, but also not believe everything you hear too. Yeah. I know, I know that uh, we've had Greg Braden on this program. He's a little more difficult to get a hold of these days because uh, I guess he's just too darn busy, but we used to be interviewing him pretty regularly. And he would talk about this one, ex this one uh, thing they discovered uh, over in, I want to say it was, I think it was the uh, either uh, uh, India or somewhere in that, uh, somewhere in that far region from where we are, uh, where uh, they were able to, basically theorize with pretty 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 much uh, some accuracy that yeah we've we've got we've been around a few times because they found this huge area where the sand had been turned to glass so now what you do is you say okay well now how hot does it have to get before you turn that sand into glass and let me tell you it's between 18 and 2200 degrees. I know this because I have a glass blowing friend who has his shop here in Santa Barbara. He's a master craftsman and uh, he has two different chambers with the, the glass 
a material that he puts in there to heat it up, to melt it in order to be able to start making the things that he makes. Well, what on earth would have caused an entire area, and we're talking miles across, to turn to glass? And the only conclusion they could come to was something akin to our modern-day atomic bomb. And, uh, you know, and, and so that, and then you start, then that opens up the old Pandora's box of, okay, well, who was fighting and, and where did they come up with all of this stuff and on and on and on. Um, I even have another friend who theorizes that there was a, 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 a space, a, a, a battle out in space. Uh, the craters on the moon were made by her, the hurling of uh, small pieces of asteroid and so forth at the Earth, and they would hit the moon. Uh, that's also how we have the meteor crater, for example, in Arizona, my home state. Also, the Gulf of Mexico was supposedly created by a, a massive meteor uh, because you just take a look at the shape. Of course, then people ask, well, where's the meteor? You got the hole. Where, where's the big ball that made the hole? It disintegrated. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. And so there are all these different theories. And then you have uh, what is it? The, the, the theories about the reptiles and uh, and the little uh, the, 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 the little people or something like that, the little aliens and and on and on and on. And then there's this other question about our technology. Did we really come up with this stuff? I mean, the 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 transformation from like, for example, a crystal radio set to be able to listen to audio on our, on our smartphones. Um, are, really, we, we came up with that? I, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical. What are your thoughts in, to, in that regard to our being influenced technologically by outside sources? Um, I don't know a lot about technology. I do know about crystals. I have hundreds of crystals in my room. Um, mm -hmm. I do believe in the, and what I do know is that they are used for um, storing information. And, you know, there's a thing about the crystal skulls. It was big with the Maya concept. There's 13 of them. And yeah, they were lost in different locations and they were found. Um, and I do know that they crystalline energy stores memory and um to me it made sense when i when i thought about how the crystals were formed so many years ago and um what was the vibration of um the thought of whatever animals were around or what was the vibration of what was going on in the planet or that kind of thing and maybe that was trapped in there so that's kind of how i understood it but also i understand it from like, you know, I've read about Edgar Cayce. I've read most of his books. Mm -hmm. He's a, the, probably the world's still most renowned psychic of all time. Um, and he's he studied the Akashic Records and he accessed them. And um, I, I learned how to access the Akashic Records as well. Um, I believe that there's, like the ancient India people say in the Vedic tradition, there's, there's an ether, there's, and within that ether, there's uh, memory stored, from all time and space. Hmm. And so well, I think go. you can access that. Um, Beethoven wrote symphonies in his dream from his dreams, those kind of things. Oh yeah. It's, it is, 
It's amazing what we can access. We've had people on talking about the Akashic Records. Uh, I, I'm just curious. Uh, do you have your library card for the Akashic Records? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I haven't gotten mine yet, but I find it fascinating. I'm not being flippant or disrespectful by any means. It's just that there is so much that we have access to through so many different means, including those that I mentioned earlier that you have incorporated and have put together uh, like, like again, numerology, symbology, the vibrational toning and so forth. We've had, uh, for example, uh, uh, Jonathan Goldman on this program talking about the importance, the healing properties of humming, of, of just humming. Uh, I, as a kid growing up, uh, for me, it was it was moaning. Uh, you know, when I didn't feel good, I moaned. And uh, my mother said to one of my sisters who had said, Mom, make him stop. He sounds horrible. She's, no, that's how he heals himself. And it was amazing my mother said that. And again, this was back when I was a child, back in the 60s, early 70s, that she was aware that that was some that was a thing. Uh, and yet there's, you know, you think that that Google <laughs> has all this information that's available to you. That's a tip of the iceberg, it seems like, to what's out in, shall we use the term, out in the ethers through crystals or through any other method. Yeah, I mean, I'm one example is I'm I'm writing my next book. It's a dystopian sci-fi, but it it talks about a lot of this. And I honestly, I didn't. I'm not really coming up with a storyline. <clears throat> I wake up and I have dreams about where I'm stuck, and then I then I begin to type. Um, I don't believe that that's an accident. Um, I don't believe that that was something that, you know, it's not for me. It's like we're just sort of channels for what our gifts and our arts are and what our potential is. Um, I don't see any problem with with that. It's pretty basic to me. I, I can talk about it like it's the weather, but it's <laughs> I don't know what to say about that besides what I did. Well, I, I have to say that I, I've always loved sci-fi. Uh, one of my favorites, of course, uh, was the Dune trilogy. And I thought it was very cool when they made it into a movie, uh, actually several, um, because I thought, man, what a mind Frank Herbert must have to come up with the intricacies of all of the different institutions that we have, uh, like you know, the religious, the political, the educational, the economic uh, and so on and so forth. And I just thought, wow, amazing. Uh, but I've always loved uh, science fiction, uh, partly because with science fiction, there is a certain element of science fact. And as more time, as man calculates it and keeps track of it, goes by, less and less is science fiction and becomes science fact. And that's what's fascinating to me is that someone says, you know, that seems like a need. I may, I have an idea for how I can make that a reality. Like in Star Trek, the original series, you had those rather thick tablets that they carried around and then they would still use a stylus to sign and so forth. And now what do we have? We have these smartphones where you don't even need a stylus. You just use your finger. It's mm -hmm. And now they're getting to the point <laughs> where I believe they have these glasses. Now, I remember years ago, Google came out with the, these glasses that didn't go that far, but they're sort of reinventing them. And and um, uh, they're uh, uh, basically, uh, you can use your eye to move the cursor and to go this place and that place. That's going to take a lot of training, I would think. But that, it's like, wow, 
Incredible. And eventually, what do you think? Eventually, maybe we won't even have to move anything. We'll think it. And it happens on the screen. Just a thought. When I was younger, I thought a telepathic credit card would be nice. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And and in a way, uh, I would have to say that uh, auto pay on those credit cards is sort of telepathic of a sort. Uh, it's it's one you don't like to think about, but you see it when your numbers start to go down and you're paying that back. But I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's these ideas that we come up with. Yeah, uh, I just think. That, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I I I I. I oh, someone's. I, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I was just saying, as, as far as the DNA part of it all, um, and other other galaxies and all this stuff, I think that. Um, if we can influence DNA how we do now here, what's to say the other DNA hasn't been influenced on other planets, other locations, and here before? I just if if technology moves so rapidly, um, I think I think that people could understand that that's a possibility. We are talking with Eli Coberly and a fascinating conversation. War in the minds of men, in the hearts of men. Well, uh, <laughs> could be too. But his book is titled War in the Hearts of Men. As we continue here on Tell Me Your Story, I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And Eli Coberly is my guest, author of fascinating book, uh, War in the Hearts of Men. Hope that you will pick up a copy of it. Um, it's always I've always been intrigued by uh, native civilizations, uh, indigenous in particular. I had the great pleasure back in, um, I want to say, 94, 1994. I should be specific since we're in a new century because they might think, oh, you're, you're that old, 1884? No. I uh, went on a cruise, a Western Caribbean cruise that stopped off at uh, on the coast where you found the Tulum ruins. Uh, I've heard of the Chichen Itza ruins and many others. Uh, And first thing that went through my mind was, why is it that the philosophical uh, uh, groups, uh, religions, if you will, always manage to get the good oceanside property? Because it was right there. It's right there on the hillside of the ocean. We have, for example, here in Santa Barbara, we have Santa Barbara Mission. And it overlooks the ocean. Again, another prime piece of property. Um, But it was rather interesting to walk through the ruins. And uh, then when I went to Ireland, my wife was intrigued by the cemeteries. And at first I thought, that's kind of kind of depressing until I started to think about it from this perspective. Love to have your talks, uh, uh, your, your input on this. These cemeteries are filled with the people who built the, the the civilization that exists today and without these people who in this case are laying in the ground um this place wouldn't exist you know the civilization was it would not exist uh and and uh, and so forth so it's you know, you know and and i i have to question this whole business of digging you know the whole archaeological thing and when they dig up the bones I'm thinking, okay, so how long do you have to wait before you can dig up the bones in a cemetery? You know, 10 years, 100 years, 500 years, because, you know, I don't want them to go necessarily to go digging up my grandmother or my grandfather, you know, and yet we do it 
constantly to native people's burial sites. Uh, What's your thought in that regard to not only the impact of past generations of these indigenous peoples and they're, they're responsible for who and what we are today only by virtue of the fact that they kept the culture going. Okay. But also then this other aspect of uh, being more respectful of these sites, or is that irrelevant in that this world being it temporal, you know, cause then we dip into the spiritual world. That's what's more important than, than the physical world. What are your thoughts? I mean, obviously it's just a shell and the, you know, the body to, for the soul. Most religions can account for that, but there's still a, a connection in the heart of the mind of the people. They, And it depends on the ancestors. Ultimately, like in Central America, um, a lot of Maya people don't have a problem with their ancestors being dug up for studying. And many of them are involved and employed as such. Um, but like if you go to Washington State, where I grew up and I was talking about the Kennewick man, that was a major catastrophe um socially because um eventually the the people had the skeleton put back into the ground um because Mm. um it was their ancestor they claim um but also the scientists that was studying it proved that it wasn't but also the 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 uh national guard or whoever it was army corps of engineers had a had a salmon agreement spawning on the columbia there they had an agreement with them so a lot of it gets political and and not all of it is just sentiment a lot of it is about okay these we want to make a deal with them about the salmon so let's let them put the skeleton back in the ground even though the skeleton was not was proven to be from japan (laughs) oh wow well and but here's the thing you dig up anybody's bones yes it was somebody's ancestor you know Whether you you knew them and you revered them or not, it's somebody's mother, father, sister, brother. Um, I know, too, that uh, some of the discoveries they made in regards to, for example, the eruption of, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Pompeii and Mount Vesuvius, mm-hmm. you know, and how many people were literally frozen in a position, you know, as, as though as they were running or what have you. And then there were others who were huddled with their children, yeah, and, and which was just amazing. And certainly that gives us a, an historical perspective on what happened and what can happen if something like, well, let's say Mount St. Helens a few years back um, erupts. And I know that, uh, you know, we have the ring of fire with all of these different uh, uh, volcanoes uh, uh, in different places. And I mean, it's just amazing. But, uh, you know, if we, I, I guess maybe there's a certain Helen of, well, we don't respect them when they're alive. So why should we respect them when they're dead? It's like, please, we can change that. And that's another question I've got for you in regards to the DNA. Uh, from your perspective, do you think that we can indeed, um, shall we say, overwrite or rewrite our DNA so as to really shift away or is it still just going to be this cyclical thing that we find ourselves in that uh, is giving us the biggest challenge of all to find that balance between the masculine and feminine energies yeah um i mean psychology helps that's a real linear way to get through that is to understand the mistakes of your 
parents or your, your ancestors and heal that within yourself. But also I think a valuable thing is the tools that the indigenous did use and that was plant medicine. Uh, the problem is, is people will wanna take the psychedelics or the plant medicine um, too often and use it like, oh, well, I got to change my mood or I, I want to feel good this weekend or, yeah. you know, instead of like set and setting like Ram Dass or Timothy Leary suggested, um, having it, <clears throat> what it does is it rewires, in particular ayahuasca, it rewires um, your mind to think more holistically about your DNA and it may change the DNA. I'm not a scientist, I don't know. But what I have noticed in, in myself and others <clears throat> is after trying it, I, I noticed a major shift in the way I looked at relation. And I, I noticed I had visions about my past ancestors and how they had made mistakes, but it, it wasn't their fault. But it was my duty, if I was aware of it, to change my relation to people. And I think that's a valuable tool that's happening right now, and especially for veterans with PTSD and those kind of things. Um, but it's also is like any other thing that influences your mind or your body. Um, it's a toxin and people use the toxin in excess to um, escape. Yeah. So I, yeah. Yeah. War in the hearts of men chronicles uh, Eli Coberly's adventures from a mock battlefield of Fort Bragg and deserts of, of Saudi Arabia to the hidden jungle pyramid to sacred caves, to ceremonial rituals uh, with Mayan priests and more, and the answers that came with those exploits. Uh, when uh, not on his hunt for answers and uh, that drive mankind towards enlightenment and peaceful coexistence, uh, Eli is a yoga therapist in Northern California, here in our home, uh, our state uh, as we speak. And you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And uh, uh, Eli, this is a fascinating conversation and there's so much to talk about. And you, you mentioned, of course, psychedelics. I never was interested that much in, for example, uh, any kind of uh, drug usage. My uh, my peers in high school in particular, I know that they were um, at least marijuana, but maybe even something harder. I didn't try any of that stuff, not because it was illegal or that it was bad for me. It just didn't interest me. But I saw this DVD on ayahuasca. And it's the first time that I have ever wanted to experience that under the conditions that this DVD uh, showed. It was a controlled environment. There were people around. They were there to keep you safe uh, and so forth. And the one thing that intrigued me more than anything else was this one man's experience uh, when he began to tell the story. And it's, oh, my gosh. And so many days went by and this and that and the other. How long was I gone? Ten minutes? <laughs> and, it yeah, and it begins to show you that time is irrelevant. Who cares about daylight saving time? It's, you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's a construct in the minds of men. Yeah, we, we, can, we can map it by the, the cycles of the sun coming up in the east and going down in the west. But still, it's, it's, you know, if you were out in space, you wouldn't even notice it. You wouldn't even notice day and night. It would all be the same. 
you know i'd be like uh, for example if you were if you were on the moon the, if you're on the moon th there is no change because the moon is always facing the earth you know uh it, to me it's just it's it's kind of fascinating although i guess you might uh, you might see the spinning of the earth that kind of thing uh but what you know, you mentioned about the psychedelics being used to uh, to take to help uh, veterans with PTSD, which I, you know, I'm I'm glad they're finally doing something in that regard because these people who have made the choice, such as yourself, uh, to serve in that capacity, um, it's almost as if the government says, "Hey, we need you. Come on over here, and this is what we'll give you," and so forth. Uh, oh, and of course, they don't tell you this. By the way, when you come back, we're not going to be here to help you. It's almost, even though there is the VA, I get that, but it's like there are so many stories of, of veterans who they don't get the help that they need. And I'm just glad that there are people in the private sector who are beginning to, uh, that have been working certainly for a long time, but they're really beginning to pressure the government to allow them to use these things that in moderation will really help. What are your your? It sounds like you're you're certainly in favor of that as well. You've kind of alluded to that in in, in our conversation here. Yeah, I mean, my experience was um, that I I would have liked a more structured situation when I tried um, the plant medicine. I um, and I think a lot of veterans in my case would need that, and I'm glad that there are advocacy groups um, that are into that because. Um, you know, you take one person who's like, oh, my my mom was mean to me. And then you take another person who is like, I saw some dead bodies on the drop zone. And, you know, what <laughs> it's a little bit different situation. And you have a guy who's like, um, maybe he's a gringo shaman or something like that. And he's shaking a tambourine and and, you know, and he's really honestly trying to help. But is he is he equipped with uh, the knowledge of a of a psychotherapist or does he have a contingency of a of a doctor there to take care of people who's sober, you know? Um, so I think that's really good. And I, I totally advocate it. One group, uh, no fallen heroes. Um, this guy's, he's a pilot, a fighter pilot, and I hope he gets me on his show. Actually, I would like to be on his show as well. <laughs> anyway, uh, he's, he's really, he's going to DC and he's advocating for veterans. So I think it's a good thing, but I don't think that, again, that people should be doing it all the time. I think it's a very special, sacred thing that should be taken um, seriously. I like the way you phrase that, a special, sacred thing. Uh, I know that um, with the DVD that I watched again regarding ayahuasca, uh, that that's how they treated it. This was not just something that you just, here, give me a cup, you know, drink it down, and I'll have my trip, and then I'll go home. It doesn't work that way. You you, And I, I have to ask you also in that regard, uh, your your feelings in regards to ritual and tradition and ceremony in in our lives. Do you feel that the, the the indigenous peoples of our past, the Mayans, the Hopis and and all of the others, uh, because they had that it was part of their culture. But here in the West, you know, I've heard people specifically whites complaining about how their culture is being taken away. Now I'm one of them, but I don't believe that. Um, well, what have you incorporated into your life to help to foster the maintenance, if you will, maintaining of your culture? What have you done to do that? Because it's not up to somebody else. It's up to you. 
Uh, what are your thoughts in the regards to ritual tradition and ceremony in our in our day-to-day lives? Well, I think they help us slow down and if nothing else, relax the nervous system, which is continually reacting to um, experiences in an oftentimes fight or flight scenario. Um, I I feel that, and also that it it's a reset. You know, you, you do something like um, maybe you put, pray with a rosary or you, you count the mala beads um, from India or you, or you uh, do the fire ceremony with the Maya people. You're getting back to what's more important and oftentimes it's grounding into the earth and it's, it's actually energetic when you, when you ground into the earth, you're, you're holding your electrical charge is strong and it's real, that's scientific. We're made up of water and it's electricity. And so when we relax and calm, then we're doing something for ourselves and others, really. And I think it's valuable. Yeah. Uh, My wife in particular, um, she has experienced all kinds of problems with computers at her at her work, where she wherever she's worked, you know, and, and she just doesn't understand it. Well, it's because somehow you manage to. <laughs> alter uh, so your electrical charge that has some kind of an influence on that computer. Nobody else, nobody else seems to have any problems, but every so, every so often, not all the time, every so often uh, she will experience some quirk uh, in, in her computer that she's working on. Uh, well, it stands to reason that that would, you'd have an impact. I mean, we've even heard of people who have had uh, certain metals put in their teeth, you know, mm-hmm. and they'll pick up radio stations. They'll pick up audio signals, you know? I mean, that's a real thing. Uh, not so much today because they're not using uh, 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 metal in the mouth so much anymore. But, you know, in years gone by, fascinating uh, uh, incorporation of different things. Do the uh, do the Mayans hold a, a, a fascination with you to the extent that you, maybe one time you were uh, of, the, of the Mayan people? Is that kind of where the connection is or indigenous peoples in that regard? You mean as far as do I think I'm reincarnated from? Yeah. Uh, I know that my birthday is astrologically the same. Well, one, I I was born on the day out of time, which is in the Maya calendar. Um, It's like sort of like the beginning of their cycle, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I don't quite understand that exactly, but. Um, I do know that my birthday is astrologically similar to the first day of their calendar. Hmm. Uh, and that's what my astrologer told me. Cause I was like, oh, I'm curious about this. And I just asked and you know, 3,114 BC is at this time, August 11th. It's the same as uh, my, my birth chart. Hmm. Pretty similar. Now I'm curious the, the, the Mayan calendar isn't, you know, X number of days in the week and weeks in the month and months in the year. Uh, it, 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 it tracks more from a cyclical standpoint in terms of, let's say mother earth and the, uh, some, uh, summer, winter, spring and fall kind of thing. Uh, no, there's a lot more to it. You have a 260 day and then whatever 365 is minus 260. There's another separate part of it. Okay. So, um, and that was more Aztec influence. And then you have this other thing, the the hob and the, I forget the other one, but they're, they're two com- combined make the 365 day year. But what you have is you have the narwhals or narwhals. And those are, those are um, 
it's like animism. So they're little animals that represent the energy and the tone of spectrum of, of mm. the days and when you were born mm. and months and um, days and years and time periods. There's a lot to it. I couldn't begin to tell you. The whole <laughs> well, maybe we'll save that for another two or three programs or something. Right. Uh, but it is fascinating to uh, to see that. I know that um, I was a Baha'i back in the 90s for about a year and a half. And and they had, um, I can't remember if it was three or four or five days in their calendar. Uh, they referred to them as intercalary days. Uh, there was no leap year, you know. It's just that's just how it that's just how it mapped out. And and, and that was rather interesting to to see that each each of these different uh, philosophical systems, in some instances, not all, have their own timekeeping, their own calendar, if you will. Uh, And uh, it's like, wow, where did this come from? What where in terms of where this information comes from, certainly you referred to the Akashic records in particularly, but what about this aspect that is spoken of more so uh, only because of my knowledge of it in the Christian tradition, the Christian philosophy, uh, the still small voice and that inner life. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that translates to some of these other ancient uh, philosophies and traditions? When you say inner life, what do you mean? Uh, listening, uh, going within, uh, yeah. being still and quiet, and even and listening for and listening to uh, f- that still small voice. <clears throat> um, I like if you the Vedic tradition talks about um, the self, the Atman, the true self. Mm-hmm. I think that's all that is. Is is the um, I don't know that it's God or Creator or. I couldn't prove it or anything like that. You know, you have spirit guides or you have, you know, some people say a native American guy with a headdress talks to them or whoever. And some people have voices inside their head, you know? It's yeah. Like, uh, so psychologically, I don't know what that is, but I believe there's a true self and a true wanting and desire that's coming out um, like full potential. And I think that's for me is what I always thought that was like something's, a higher self um, speaking to you as to a better choice or a better option. Interesting. So you have another book you say that's coming out that you're working on, I should say. Yep. Uh, title for it yet? Yeah. Um, hashtag artificial antiquity. Hopefully no one takes the name yet. <laughs> I hear you. No, I hear you. Yeah. You want to grab those, uh, titles as quickly as you can. I was lucky enough uh, uh, some 15, 16 years ago, I was able to get my website, uh, my name. Uh, so um, I was like, wow, it's it's still available because I've Googled myself and I found that there are a lot of Richard Dugans, uh, huh. not necessarily with the middle name uh, of my father, but um, uh, nonetheless, uh, so I, I grabbed it right away and and off we went. Uh, this is really interesting, Eli. Eli Coberly is my guest, and we're talking about uh, his book in particular and the subject matter and all of the uh, ancillary uh, conversation regarding War in the Hearts of Men. War in the Hearts of Men is the title of the book. And um, besides his own curiosity, um, he spent his life traveling, following uh, the various clues we've kind of talked about. And you've been quoted here as saying that 
and, and this is to me fascinating. Transformation through mythological symbolism can unlock our perception of who we think we are and propel us into who we are destined to become. I believe that humanity's struggle struggles, plural, have taken place so that we might become closer to our essence, which leads me to this question. We know about all of these different, well, we know about many of these different prophecies and all of this different, all of this information. So if this is our fifth time around, and there are those who hope that we succeed this time and make it through um, is is what the human race has been going through been what we've been going through uh, shall we say uh, if we were looking at a map preordained but what isn't is how we respond to those challenges it's like going through, um, going into one of these escape rooms, you know, you have to find the clues. It's all already been set up, but it's how you figure it out that is what's really important. Yeah, um, I, I would say that the reaction, how, yeah, like what, what you're doing um, about it, 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 what the reaction and the action. So how, how you're perceiving it, and if you're perceiving it as a threat rather than an opportunity, you might be wasting your time. Um, and I think that, honestly, this was all put in front of us so we could become uh, better humans, better souls, better uh, workers of light, things like that. And this may be irrelevant, but do you think that... Uh that we are not as human beings, we are not indigenous to this planet. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, now that I'm researching more and more and I, you know, at first I was like, oh, the jury's out, but I would say it's more of a possibility than anything. Um, especially how big the universe is, and especially once you study other galaxies, like the Andromeda galaxy, that's big spiral that you see in the North fall time. Um, those kind of things you can't there's way too much space and matter out there and way too much of a span of a time and way too much evidence pointing towards let you know more than the last 2000 years and a messiah at at that point mm. that's another interesting element there too in terms of uh we're waiting around for someone something to come uh, and there are people who predict, as I mentioned earlier, and and some of the conversations I've had on this program are are leaning more towards, you know what, that may or may not be true, but in this here and this now, it's really not important. It's it's kind of irrelevant. Um, but I also know too that we are always looking for signs. And I know just recently I saw a photograph or a picture. I don't know if it was the of the one, but there has been a white buffalo born somewhere. They did not reveal where because they didn't want people to poach it. Uh, but the Native American traditions speak about what a white buffalo means. I don't know what it means exactly, but it's supposedly a good omen. But we're always looking for these signs. Um, 
do these different traditions, including the Mayan, uh, give us any signs, any uh, anything we should be looking out for in terms of whether or not we've figured it out or not uh, that will tell us, okay, we won't have to go around a sixth time because there isn't going to be a sixth time. We're going to make it this time. We're going to succeed and it's going to be okay. Or we blew it. We've already gone past the point of no return and um, we might just throw up our hands and forget about it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring up white buffalo calf woman prophecy. That's um, something that I'm writing about in my next book. Um, that prophecy right there holds a lot of water when it comes to the future of our species, I believe. And it and it says a lot about symbology and, and uh, through through the chakras and things like that and, and the ancient sites around the world. Um, but I believe that there's probably going to be a time where people realize the potential of technology as a way to uh, means for, for an end and not just the technology like we have on our screens, but more like the technology of the ancients that was already available if we paid attention. It's a little out there, but it could be possible. And I think people like, uh, and it, you know, this is controversial maybe, but like Elon Musk, if he's, whatever you think about him, however you feel about him, He's a guy who said he cares about the planet and it's public and he has lots of money. And so people are, are complaining in certain facets, but if there's more and more people saying, I want to do something that's good for the planet, whether or not they're right or righteous, that's a good sign. And the people with lots of money, if they say we want to do something good, that's never been done before. <laughs> My guest is Eli Coberly. The book is entitled War in the Hearts of Men. And this is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And uh, we are talking with Eli Coberly about his book and uh, the website that we want to send you folks to, which, by the way, Eli, we will be linked to. Uh, and uh, we're going to have folks go there. It's elicoberly.com, E. L-I-C-O-B-E-R-L-Y dot com, where you can find out more about uh, uh, the work that he is doing, the book that he has written. And, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, war and competition, uh, subjugation. Well, it's the engine that's run the world since the dawn of agriculture and the sublima uh, sublimation of the feminine and uh, illusory principle of separation. And of course, in his uh, latest work, War in the Hearts of Men, he traces how we arrived at a world where men feel compelled to dominate, to hide their uh, tenderness and compassion, to show their toughness and to propagate war and how this is leading the planet directly down a path of self-destruction final question in this regard eli are we in your estimation and based upon the signs that the prophecies speak of in the traditions you have researched thus far uh have we are we are we going down that path of self-destruction have we gone to the point of no return or is that still still up for grabs as of yet yes <laughs> 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 thank you so much uh <laughs> yeah, right. so so in other words we still have a choice to make yeah i mean i feel like if 
it's inevitable that people die. Everyone's going to die. And, and that's why we have religion and um, choices are made um, on the grander scale. And there's not much that we can do about it except for um, individually. And, and then hopefully whatever we do individually will be collective um, over the long term for a, a better world. Mm. Well, I want to thank you for giving us so much time here on the program, and uh, I'm hoping that we have covered uh, the, the significant points on this uh, to educate people uh, as well as to enlighten them and interest them in continuing to follow up by getting in touch with you through your website or, for that matter, getting a copy of your book, uh, War in the Hearts of Men. And I thank you so much uh, for uh, for being a part of this program. Thank you, Richard. I do have three final questions for you, though. Yep. Can I ask all of my guests? Uh, and we've been doing that for 15 years. Uh, but before I do, I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And we are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and 9 a.m. on Wednesdays for a special edition of Tell Me Your Story. Uh, we uh, podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations on the internet, too numerous to mention. And you can watch these interviews on YouTube. We hope that you will do that and also select notification so that you will know when we post a new conversation on the website. We also ask that if you can do so to support us financially, we can use all the help we can get. And we thank those who have already helped us and those who will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have a PayPal account. It's there for your security as well as ours. And uh, when you go there to contribute, just put in my email address, which is Richard at richarddugan.com. It'll help to take care of the costs that we incur through through the podcasting services and the website and on and on. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And please spend time during this, the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, going within and listening to and following the promptings of that still small voice. With all of that said, we now go to our final three questions for our guest. And uh, the first of those three questions is, who is Eli Coberly? He's a regular man um, going through time and space in a meat suit. He, I, he's just like everyone else, but uh, he's a guy who decided to to uh, live up to his full potential and, and explore some big questions about himself and try and set an example for others. I'm a writer and um, I grew up in a small town, so I, I'm really don't have much of an education, but I took the time to educate myself about the world. Well, we are certainly glad that you did and to do the research that you've done. We appreciate it. Next question is, what is your life's purpose? My, I believe my life's purpose is to help people with their dreams. And um, and if their dreams include um, becoming closer to themselves, then that would be wonderful. And finally, what was your best day? <laughs> I think when my daughter was born, she was born four years ago. Mm. Once again, Eli, we thank you for being with us here on the program. This has been a, a really educational and uh, enlightening experience for me, although I'm familiar with much of what you have spoken about here. But I'm just glad that we were able to bring it uh, bring it to the public because you have tied so many of these different elements together that 
it, it's about time somebody did that you know because there there is uh there's a certain synchronicity there's a certain connectedness uh, not only to all of these different traditions but also to us and uh, we thank you for connecting with us today thanks richard thanks for having me and I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast podcast videocast, love to lol, Jeanette, I am listening, and dad, be happy. <laughs>